0: I would like to invite you to take a moment, closing your eyes, finding a place of center, be that sitting down, lying down, and letting yourself evoke a place of quietude, offering this moment for you to evaluate, To take inventory and at some point simply looking at yourself. Breathing in and breathing out. Allowing yourself to consider what you have laid and what you are embarking on, what you have explored and what is on the horizon. Breathing in and breathing out, letting that thought percolate. Simply thinking, feeling, and allowing in all the emotions. And potentially one significant thought or experience pops up there's nothing
1: wrong to indulge in that moment, to contemplate in that moment.
0: Continuing to breathe in and breathe out. Moving forward and considering what's on the horizon. Witnessing the act of imagination take hold.
1: And as you swim and the horizon and the future, notice the difference in the emotions that come up
0: between the two experiences. Breathing in and breathing out. And as you come back to your
1: center, inviting you to come back to your body, knowing that this was just a brief exercise, Remember that you can always tap into the past and the
0: future. Coming back into the breath, opening your eyes, and when you're ready, going back to your day.
1: Hi, it's Ryan. Welcome to your weekly dose of the Psychedelic Psychologist, where I invite my guests to share stories about their psychedelic experiences We cover a variety of topics, from overcoming addiction and severe depression to finding wholeness and spiritual emergence. Today's podcast, you're going to hear from one of my guests, Nick, who paints a beautiful picture of his experience within the world of psychedelics, how he's integrating it, and what he's hoping to look at, what he's willing to face, and in the most humble and expressive way, what he's learned from his healing journey with and without psychedelics. Nick, it's great to see you. It's great to hear your voice. How are you coming in today?
2: Hey, thank you. Yeah, today I'm feeling kind of emotionally raw, feel kind of present, feel some excitement for this, feel some nervousness. So yeah, kind of mixed bag. I love it. The mixed bag is always a
1: nice way to look at it. You said something that really drew my attention, emotionally raw. What does it mean to you to be emotionally raw?
2: Things feel close to the surface. Emotions feel close to the surface for me. Yeah, I just feel like I'm, feel more connected. Think that there, there's a component of that as well. That's sort of like, I feel more connected to the unpleasant negative emotions. Definitely just feel like I'm, I'm closer to tears than I would be on a normal day. That's, yeah, that's, that's how I experience it.
1: And, you know, having the safety to do that, what do you need to tap into that emotional rawness for safety?
2: I don't know. I think that if I, if I feel like going into that, if it comes up, then it'll come up. But yeah, ultimately, you know, my, my goal is always just to try to be honest. And if being honest involves expressing some vulnerable emotion and that's just what happens but if not then that's okay too so
1: you meet me at the intersection of what I specialize in which is authenticity you said being honest psychedelic integration as well as sexual expression can you tell me a little bit about how you found psychedelics
2: yeah yeah so my story starts back when I was a kid I was brought up in a really conservative evangelical Christian family, had a lot of fear and shame surrounding sex and sexuality in that environment. And that set me off, combined with a traumatic sexual experience I had as a child, set me up to have a lot of difficulties with compulsive sexual behavior, um, particularly pornography. And so when I was exposed to pornography around age 10. It became an immediate problem for me, and it was something I wasn't able to stop. And fast forward over the years, I became aware of psychedelic therapy by listening to some podcasts and became aware of how it was proving to be effective in treating addiction. And when I was sort of reaching the last straw of my, you know, the end of the rope of my, you know, my Trying to do things on my own, trying to recover from my sex addiction on my own, I had the idea of, let me try to see if psychedelics can help. And so that's where they really entered the picture in a therapeutic way. Prior to that, I, that particular experience, I had had two, say, much smaller dose, lesser recreational experiences with mushrooms, but neither of those, I didn't go into either of those with an intention of like healing or therapy or anything like that.
1: Can you tell me your personal difference of how you differentiate a recreational experience versus a therapeutic experience now that you've had both?
2: Yeah, yeah. Recreational experience for me, part of it obviously is just the dose, Uh, taking a much smaller dose. And for me, the intention was really just surrounding curiosity. I just wanted to, I wanted to kind of experience what, get a taste for the territory, like what is this like? And there's a lot of openness with the experience of letting it kind of go wherever it was going to go. Didn't have a plan of like, maybe there was a few things of like, oh, here's some things that might be cool to watch on YouTube or something like that. But ultimately the recreational experiences were low dose, curiosity was the intention and there wasn't much structure to it. And then the, the therapeutic dose was much higher as i read the from roland griffiths his paper famous paper is titled was it uh, mystical type cyber experiences so we're looking for a dose of psilocybin in particular that could occasion a mystical type experience which is a high dose so dose is very high there's a lot of intention going into it of like this is the specific problem that I'm looking for insight, help healing in regards to, um, and then there was a better container set up for it. So for my particular experience, I, I did it with friends who were experienced, at least one friend who was very experienced. And then one I a very good friend with me who was a sober trip sitter. So there was much more structure involved with it. Although now in hindsight, I would, I would much, I would highly advocate being even more responsible with the higher-dose experiences than than what I do. Thank you.
1: I totally endorse that. I am grateful that you recognize, though, that the intention has a large aspect to play in the therapeutic aspect. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the emotion you have now coming out of these experiences as you relate to what the relationship is with sexuality and healing and What does it really take to heal sexual trauma and the sexual addiction that you've been so transparent and vulnerable talking about?
2: Gosh, well, I feel like there's a very long answer and then there's a very short answer. The the thing that I found in my own recovery was that kind of regardless of where I started in my story, it's like I, I could kind of find a thread of. You know, my, say it's like the addiction thread, it's like, okay, I'm gonna follow this thread and see where it connects to in my life. And, you know, I found that the, the thread of addiction went into, went into myself, went into my, my habits, my behaviors, my perspectives, my attitudes, my beliefs, went into my relationships, went into my say kind of higher things or more fundamental things, went into my, my relationship with my, with myself, went into my spirituality went into sort of like pierced the layers of myself. But then if I kept following, if I kept following that thread, ultimately I found that it went out into my family, it went into my childhood, into my upbringing. And then it went out into my culture, went out to the immediate environment that I was brought up in, not just sort of my religious upbringing, but then also the culture surrounding it. So it was like, man, if I set to work on healing my my sex addiction, it takes addressing in some aspects everything, like it's it's the whole package. So there there's not a quick fix, but at the same time, I, w- I also would say that there kind of is in a way, which is that it's it's really ultimately about connection. That for me, my sex addiction has always been seeking some kind of loving connection that I was just unable to find within myself and unable to experience within the relationships in my life. Ultimately, when I started finding connection, that's when things started to improve for me.
1: What's the emotion that you have right now? I hear a sense of clarity in that. What, what comes up when you say that, this desire for connection?
2: Almost, I'm laughing internally a little bit. Like, you know, a kind of sense of like, it's almost comical to me to connect with the sense of how many years I struggled on my own before I, you know, kind of realized it was like, oh, the whole time, this has never been about sex. This has been about connection. Like hmm. it's never been about the pornography. It's never been about any of that the whole time. It's just been about connection. And that makes me laugh in a way. Cause it's just like, wow, it's just kind of, it's kind of ridiculous in a way of like, wow, I spent how many years of my life? <laughs> You know struggling and thinking that the solution was just to try harder and get me you know increase my willpower and only to have the realization of like oh yeah no it was much it was much more simple than that but at the same time it's more difficult because that was the you know that was the piece of my life that I was you know I, I wasn't aware that I was missing
1: you say that really beautifully this idea how simple it is yet extremely how hard it is And you also, in your honor and deep respect for you, recognize all the moving parts culturally, societal, you know, generational, familial, religious, spiritual. It's such a huge ball to unravel. Mm -hmm. And it's a breath of fresh air for you to say, yeah, taking this on. Isn't a one hit fix, nor is it going to be an overnight transition.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: the The iceberg analogy is cliche as it is, definitely, rings true for me. That the the addiction itself, where how it shows up, how it manifests, is just the tiny tip that's poking out of the water, and then you look at like, oh, where is this coming from? What's it coming out of? And it's like, oh wow, there's way more under the surface of the water than there is on top. So yeah, that's very deeply interconnected. And there's, yeah, the, the addiction is coming out of a very complex and interwoven you know, series of factors and conditions and circumstances. Could
1: we swim in that analogy for a moment of the iceberg and how it relates both to psychedelic healing and sexual health? It seems that they eclipse one another that both in psychedelic healing, I think there's a misnomer that it isn't an iceberg that it could be just these one experiences or transformational experiences. But really, what I appreciate you're saying is that the psychedelic work also takes the iceberg analogy as a good perspective. Would you agree?
2: Yes. Yeah, I've never used the iceberg analogy with in the context of my experience with psychedelics, but I certainly would agree with the, the idea that the high dose of psychedelics did not fix me. Uh, in fact, the, the high dose of psychedelics gave me an experience that was so terrifically challenging that I'm still dealing with it to this day, even like five years later. So it was not, it was not a quick fix. I I'm continuing have learned and I'm continuing to learn an extraordinary amount from it. But yeah, it was, if anything, I would say like the psychedelic experience just showed me in a very brutal almost way what was underneath the water it was like i was swimming around like walking around on the tip of the iceberg and in the psychedelics you know the the mushrooms were like all this stuff that's beneath the surface that you don't want to look at like here it is and did so in a way that was kind of non-consensual it was like i was seeing it whether i wanted to or not so yeah
1: Thank you for that variation of what you said. Because the idea, what I'm hearing, Nick, is it wasn't consensual. And that's something, as a harm reduction therapist, I want to address and ask you how are you styling this unconsensual, consensual experience, right? Or I should say, consensual experience, because you took the medicine, but it became an unconsensual, like, download of information that we might not be ready for. I know myself, I've had those experiences too. So what are you doing to reconcile those today? Five years later?
0: Yeah, gosh. Um, there's been a a series of integration.
2: I would kind of hesitate to use the word techniques, but for lack of a better word that I've used over the years that have been profoundly helpful for me one of which was looking at my experience as though it was trying to teach me something and the the thing that I had to kind of preface that a little bit one my experience with psychedelics was that they it was kind of like a dream you know when we when we fall asleep and we go to a dream if i'm having a nightmare it's like in my dream i really believe that i'm being chased by a real monster and it's just real it's all manifesting as real right in front of me but it's not until I wake up and then I have the gift of hindsight in my present mind to look back at it and be like, oh, wow, no, that was really symbolic. I was experiencing it as real, but it's actually, it was really symbolic. And so with my psychedelic experience, like it was, the content itself was extraordinarily traumatic. Got an insight basically into the, the deepest fears that I have, but it came to me as a, as a real to me experience. It wasn't like I was, I wasn't detached from it where I was like, Oh yes, I see that I am afraid of being alone. It was like, it was, it was a manifestation of of an experience of loneliness that was so deep and profound that it, it just, you know, sucked the life out of me. And so in, in the wake of that, the thing that's one of the things that's been helpful is to Look at my experience through this lens of if it was trying to teach me something, what would it be? If these things were, if these aspects of my trip were symbolic and they were showing me something about the nature of my mind, the nature of the way that I'm being in my life, what are they showing me? What did that experience try to show me? And that certainly has been very, very effective. And another piece along with that has been. Looking at the, uh, just listening to the the experiences of others, like one of the things that was really difficult for me was, I had a lot of, I would say now existential OCD that was triggered by this experience. I was so deeply afraid and and traumatized and in a state of panic, in the wake of this experience that I was just obsessing constantly over, you know, evaluating whether certain philosophical claims were true in relationship to my experience, right? Things about the nature of self, the nature of life, death, rebirth, the universe, like all of those questions were just haunting me. But one of the things that really helped was like when I listened to the experiences of others, it sort of stripped this objective, ultimate truth quality from my own experience. So when I was able to hear, you know, oh, wow, when people take high doses of psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca or whatever, they go to very different places than where I went. You know, if if what I saw in a sense was like objectively true, like I, as though my trip was showing me, you know, a real, you know, like true, it, it, was, it was portraying to me true things about the nature of reality. Uh, then everybody who took the same dose of psychedelics or psilocybin that I did would experience the exact same thing that I did, but they don't, right? So that helped me sort of, split the difference between what is true objectively and what was true for me and that and realize that what I was experiencing on this, on this trip, although it was extraordinarily traumatic was what I was seeing was the nature of my own mind. It wasn't necessarily the nature of all of reality outside of of existence, right? That makes right. That makes sense.
1: No, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's a beautiful endorsement for connection, right? To come full circle back to our desire to connect with people and be reassured at some level that we can have autonomous and individual experiences, and yet they're not by nature an expression of the ultimate truth that everyone has Mm -hmm. the same thing. Right. What are you doing today as you walk with such a real cartography of experience and healing to ground yourself in the everyday? What are you doing to ground yourself in both being gentle with yourself and healing yourself all the same time?
2: Yeah, a big part for me has been, been there's kind of multiple layers here. The first one is actually just abstinence. in in all senses of the word, I find that I'm in a state right now where just mind and mood altering substances tend to make everything worse. So things from like caffeine to alcohol, I stay away from for the most part. Caffeine can be really problematic for me because it's a a huge firefighter in my life, but it just skyrockets my anxiety. And I can feel that it obstructs my ability to, you know, work with how I'm feeling. And then a lot of body-centered practices have been really helpful for me. So Meditation over the last couple of years has become very difficult trying to sit down and relax and folk bring attention towards how I'm feeling in my body has become a very destabilizing thing where it can actually exacerbate the panic and the anxiety and the trauma, but doing other sort of meditation, like things that don't involve concentration on how I'm feeling can be very helpful. So. I've done a lot of, I read a book called The Transformation by James Gordon, and in that he recommends a practice he calls shaking and dancing, which is kind of like somatic experiencing. So I, I found that while just paying attention to how I feel, the combination of just deep, relaxing breath, sort of like soft belly breathing is another word for it. Big diaphragmatic breaths along with shaking actually has, has helped me an enormous amount. It's very um that can be very relieving it sort of feels like it takes the the emotional pressure inside of me and like lets some of the pressure out which can help and then a mindful stretching or yoga is another thing that i find is readily accessible for me and can help a lot relaxing my body oftentimes will lower the anxiety and help myself feel more grounded social time connection with others is also huge nothing Nothing for me has been as effective as just being around a group of people who are interested in, you know, me in a, in a caring and loving way, both in the, you know, my experience in the 12 step recovery groups, and then also the various group therapy that I've done over the years. Those have been profoundly helpful. Yeah. And then I have a dog now, I have a nice German Shepherd, who's four years old, and he definitely helps a lot. So those are a few.
1: You are a tremendous breath of fresh air. I say this with a deep sense of gratitude and heart, Nick, for you to talk about abstinence and sustaining. And I am a monster fan of the prudent approach of putting it down and taking a moment to evaluate and acknowledge what we're gaining. And you to talk about body-centered exercises shaking and dancing is a huge aspect of my somatic expression with clients and so it it means the world to me that you're integrating that and working with it thank you so much i appreciate your courage i appreciate your vulnerability and transformation journey that you're on so nice to see you
2: yeah yeah absolutely it's been uh maybe not by virtue but by necessity I have, I have found my way towards, towards all these things, so yeah.